You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Brave new radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Wednesday at 8 p.m. Professor David Kerfield, along with your Dr. Esteban. And our Marconi Emeritus. Yes, Marconi the Emeritus. Emeritus by trade, Emeritus by day, and at night he is a superhero, conquering right. music business in a cape and a cane, and he looks great as he does it. I guess we're really the owners now of Music Biz 101 and more. That's right. We have got uh, officially the trademark for Music Biz 101 and Music Business 101, I believe is right. Well. So, uh, next do we have the official trademark or do we have now the go ahead that there is no more blockage for it? I think there's no more blockage for Music Business 101, and I believe we have Music Biz 101. Right. So, um, that's how I came to understand it. And this was our attorney, Carl Guthrie, who was communicating with us about this the other day. So, that's good news. And we've already stopped some people already from using Music Biz 101 yeah. out there. So, there we go. And we should tell you not to stop and don't cease from going to musicbiz101wp.com to sign up for our newsletters, which you'll get every Wednesday, definitely, which will tell you who's going to be on the radio show that night. And also, whoever's on the radio show that night also becomes a podcast, which you can find on the iTunes and the SoundCloud. You can follow us on music, at musicbiz101wp on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook. Should we give thanks, Dr. Esteban? better. We must give thanks now to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kiss. There's only one place. There's only bold, underlined, only one place, not two, not three, just one. There's 15 minus 14. That's how many places there are to go for your band's business management. Go to VB CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine Oi. Bay, a wealth manager at the 4FOUR Front Group. Christine has helped professionals and amateurs all over the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement, 
when you're thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to christine.boy at forefront.com. Leave the last going off the savings. Which you always should do. We should mention that the University of William Patterson's music business program is ranked one of the best in the history of the world by a fellow named Bill Board. And we thank him for that. And three years running, four out of six years. I guess those two years that we didn't get it, those were the two years that we uh, decided to just sleep. Is that what it was? We didn't do anything those years. Yeah, I think it was. That's what it was, yes. And at this point, we should probably do an intro because we have a very special student guest host with us today, Samantha Dion. Sammy Dion! No relation to Celine. How are you, Sammy, today? I'm doing good. How are you? Never better. Well, there was that one day. How do you officially pronounce your last name? Dion. Oh, okay. So he was very close. So I, so I, yeah, I was so close that I actually nailed it. So yeah. um, I will mention Sammy is on this because, and I always call you Sammy, and I hope that doesn't bother you, but it, it probably wouldn't be stopped even if it did bother you. Yeah, I'm used to it by now. <laughs> so there we go. So she realizes there's no stopping. She's on because this is part of a music biz Nashville class that we do every summer. Usually we go to Nashville. And with this class, we bring undergrads and MBA students to Nashville. They meet people, they wrangle them and have them do an interview with us for the radio show podcast. This year, instead of going to Nashville, we did everything online. And Sammy has wrangled somebody for us today. And Sammy, who did you get and who's gonna be on? So we are talking to Dan Wise, manager at Starstruck Entertainment, manager of country artist Hunter Hayes, mentor for the Grammy U program and for students at Belmont University here on the radio show today. And it's gonna be great. So he's gonna talk about managing, he's gonna talk about the day-to-day stuff, the vision stuff, he's gonna talk about tour managing, uh, Guinness Book of World Records, there's a lot that he's gonna talk about. So that's gonna be very, very exciting. Do you agree, Dr. Esteban? I am waited with bated breath. Waited with bated, bated and waited, and that's what he is. I want to start by saying thank you for agreeing to come on here. I appreciate it. And let's get started. So you began your career in the music industry as a sound engineer, and then you became a tour manager. So what made you want to switch roles? For me, well, first, let me say thank you so much for for having me on, and and thanks for the great intro. I will just want to clear things up on the front end. So um, Starstruck and Hunter Hayes parted ways almost a year ago now. So I'm still at Starstruck Entertainment as an artist manager, just not looking after Hunter Hayes anymore. Um, so just wanted to kind of put that out there on the front end. Um, but to answer your question, um, you know, I, I started as a sound engineer and I kind of just saw a growth pattern, you know, when I was on the road early on when I was 18 as a sound engineer, I just kept looking at who's that person's boss, who's that person's boss and what's my, you know, how can I continue to grow in an in industry that I was really loving and when I saw the top sound engineers, I just, they were great do mixing the biggest shows in the world, but, um, and they were making a great living and a great career. But for me, I saw it as kind of, you know, I'm mixing shows right now and I'm, I'd be mixing shows at the end as well, rather than kind of this growth, you know, this, you know, learning something new, being able to challenge myself in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of seemed like, you know, more money, more opportunity, but the same kind of 
the same thing. And I was just kind of looking for something a little bit more. So I wanted to get into production management and tour management. When you joined Starstruck, what kind of benefits did you get, um, you and your artist, that you didn't have before? Well, Starstruck is, you know, for those of you that don't know, Starstruck is a management and entertainment company. And, and Starstruck has been around for a really long time. Uh, CEO, Narvel Blackstock, started the company a long time ago, and he had this vision of this company to not just be a management company, to be an all-encompassing entertainment company. And so he created management, but he also, you know, has a division of it that does publishing, and he has two giant state-of-the-art recording studios downstairs, and he has a content studio, and he has writing rooms, and he has a you know, an interview room and a green room. And, you know, now he has podcast rooms and those type of things. So he's very, like, he's always been ahead of the curve as far as providing artists and creatives more tools than they would, you know, that probably that they would ever need, but providing them more tools than just a management service. And so that's, I think, the beauty of Starstruck Entertainment. And, and even now, an artist can come into our facility go into a writing room, write, write a song, go into the recording studio, record it, you know, go into the content studio, do a photo shoot and a video shoot, go into the, the vibe room, the interview room, and do you know, press announcements and liners. So we can kind of do the whole album top to bottom in, in one building, which I think is pretty special. So I think the endless amount of resources from that company is, is pretty incredible. And would you say that a company having all of that is rare? Um, in my experience, I think for a management company, it was rare. It's starting to become more and more popular, in my opinion, just because management companies, I think, are now, you know, now they're kind of being more self-sufficient rather than depending on labels and depending on, you know, other companies to, to grow and build an artist. I think, you know, now a manager, you know, can build a marketing plan, can go shoot quality content for cheap, you know, do photo shoots, kind of have this, you know, this all-encompassing career model built out and help the artist gain traction as an independent artist. You know, as Starstruck, you know, a lot of our artists are independent. Blake Shelton and Kelly Clarkson and I guess Kale Dodds are the three with, on record labels right now. Um, but with our joint ventures with, you know, label services and with other companies, we're able to kind of grow and build an artist's career without a major record label involved. Mm. How do you find um, the artists that you manage? Do you cut them through Starstruck most of the time or do you find them separately and then bring them to Starstruck? A little bit of both. Um, Starstruck gets a lot of calls, obviously, because of who they are. And so you kind of have to filter out some of those, those artists and kind of do a lot of groundwork and legwork. You know, I, I also love relationships and going and seeing who's available. The one thing that I personally don't do and we don't do as a company with Starstruck is we don't poach other artists. And, you know, so if, if somebody else has a manager, we never go after that person, you know, and we'll never, we never will. It's just not good business and that's not the way we like to do business. Um, but, you know, when those, you know, when those artists are looking for somebody else, Starstruck is typically a company that they would call because of the size and the the opportunities that we've provided for artists. So uh, we do get those calls quite a bit. And at that point, it's just a matter of, you know, 
kind of weighing all the options. Where are they at in their career? What are, they, what are their expectations? And to be honest with you, our company doesn't really work with people that are difficult or we don't want to work with. I mean, we have a really, everybody on our staff and our company, our artist roster to managers, to publishers, everybody in our building is, loves to be there. Really excited. We all get together. I mean, we all really like each other. And so it's a very positive place to work. I think that's more important than anything else. How big is, uh, how many employees the company? Um, in our building, I would say with studio and everything else, we probably got about 50 mm -hmm. with, with studio and everything else. I think we have about on the management floor, we got a probably 14. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we have writer rooms and producers and artists and studio right. staff. Is it mostly employees or independent contractors? Um, I'd say probably 80% employees. You know, a lot of our studio engineers, we hire, we staff some, but then we also have some that are, you know, independent contractors that we bring in, depending on the project. Right. Are the, are the managers employees or independent contractors? Um, managers are employees. Yeah. Okay. Because yep. we talked to somebody from Red Light earlier, and she mentioned how over there the managers are independent contractors, looking and, at the similarities and differences. Yeah, and I've worked with management companies that operate that way. You know, they'll just kind of give you pretty much the keys to the kingdom and say, hey, we're here for you to support you as a big company. And we can, you know, Red Light's a perfect example. We can open, we have the key to every door in the industry, you know, it doesn't mean you're gonna get an opportunity, but we can open the door for you. And, and, you know, and you just kind of operate as more of an independent contractor. And whenever you need their support, they're there for you to help support you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was looking at the Starstruck website and I saw that there's a, race car driver. I don't know what the technical name for that is, but how is their career handled differently than an artist? Um, there is a race car driver and, uh, <laughs> and Starstruck actually sponsored his car and helped with a lot of the sponsorships for the race car driver. So, you know, as a manager, you know, we are there to provide opportunities any way we can for any artist. I mean, obviously now you can see, you know, our, our biggest artist that we have on our roster is Blake Shelton. And now he's a TV star, a little bit different than a musician. Well, he's still a musician, but you know, it's just a little bit different, um, different paths of entertainment. And I think that sports is just another path of entertainment. And so, you know, it's just finding the right opportunities within that, that level of entertainment. Um, and I bring that up because I think, you know, Blake being on The Voice and some of the other artists that we manage being from The Voice, you know, that are also musicians, but we've had to really sit down and really think about, you know, what, what are people gravitating towards when they watch The Voice and these artists are winning, right? It's not that they're original music. It's this storyline that they've built on The Voice and you kind of feel like you're a part of their life. So when you kind of transition from this one kind of entertainment TV and then introduce, oh, here's my original music. Now I'm a musician. People don't really, they're kind of like, oh, okay, here's what you're doing. Until, you know, the, the line kind of got cut off as far as TV and what the entertainment, the TV mm -hmm. value is providing. And now you're kind of providing a whole different kind of entertainment. I just say all that because there's different opportunities in all of them. And as a, as a manager, you're just looking for those opportunities to help escalate your artist's career, your, your athlete's career, or your TV stars, or your actor's career. 
Can we, can we go back for a second to how you find artists? Because I know there are many different ways and you, you spoke a little bit about it, but are you, whether it's, let's say it's not COVID going out to shows or are you watching YouTube or do you have interns looking at SoundCloud and who's got, you know, 2 million streams in a week who, you know, the, the young hip hop person there, or um, are you looking at Facebook and seeing that there's this, um, looks like a 20 year old girl who's looping every, all these instruments and doing a, a mean cover of a Metallica tune and she's playing every instrument on it and all of a sudden it has 20 million views. Are all those different things that you do or are you completely different and you do this instead? No, I, it's all of the above for me personally. I mean, we, we, there's a platform called Chartmetric and it shows you all the charts and you, there's an A&R section on there where you can see like who's, who's Spotify is, is taken off recently in the past in the next 60 days or one week or whatever parameters you set or who's Instagram. You know, um, it's for us, I mean, for me personally, I mean, the, the talent wins almost all the time. But two, beyond that, you know, what, what I look for when I look for an artist is somebody that's willing to put in the work. You know, I've used this in every conversation I've had like this, and I just think it's powerful. But I watch a show called Shark Tank, right? And it's a show where you go and pitch to investors. And, you know, I, I just laugh because when you, if, you know, if I was an artist or a business owner and I went and pitched to the investors and I said, hey, I got this great album. I got this great music, you know, invest in me. And they say, okay okay, well, what do the numbers look like? Well, how much have you grown? What's your marketing strategy look like? What does it look like to you? Oh, well, that's what I'm here for you guys. You know, they would say, no, sorry, that's not for us. You know, as far as the music industry goes, I think it's very important to think of the same, same kind of parameters. I mean, if an artist can start growing their business and marketing and understand who they are and what they want and what their goals are, the expectations are crystal clear for a manager on how we can help you. But if you're just walking in like, I don't know, I just write some music, it's going to be kind of a rocky start, in my opinion, because you could take them this way. And in a year from now, they'd be like, wait, I didn't want to go that way. I wanted to go this way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the expectations aren't clear because they don't even know who they are, they are themselves. So I think that that's, in my opinion, it's really important to make sure that you find an artist that really understands who they are, what they want. Their work ethic is up there. They're not just looking for somebody to kind of handle everything. I mean, they're the, they're the visionaries. As a manager, we're just there to guide and support and counsel where you want to be as an artist, right? Mm -hmm. We're just there to bring opportunities and just kind of help you escalate where you want to be. If you don't know where you want to be, it's pretty pretty tough, tough fight. So you're kind of looking at prospective artists that you're going to manage as a business more than an artist. Like the music is a big aspect, but they need to know what they're doing. Yeah, I think once you enter into looking for a manager, or when you do, you're probably looking for a record label or additional companies to support you. You did enter it into a business. You know, it, it is a business. And, you know, not to discredit the art or the person behind the art, but when you do it, you, you know, as on the business side, you realize that that song. And that person is a is a product and a brand, and you gotta have you gotta grow it as such. You know, being respectful that they your your brand actually has feelings. It's not just a product. It's just not you know a can of soda on the on the counter. They do have feelings, and they, you gotta respect that. But 
you do have to, you know, step back and realize, you know, you have to make really sometimes hard business decisions for an artist that may not be the exactly what they want for their career. And it's kind of, you know, that's where the feelings come into play, right? Hey, this would be best for you. Well, how do you navigate something that may be best for their career, but hard for them emotionally or personally? I'm always curious to find out how it works at different management companies. When it comes to contracts, does Starstruck like to, um, do they give you a basic artist manager contract that they like everyone to use or do you, are you on your own for that? Um, between the artist and manager, every company, like you said, is different. You know, I have always respected the companies that are the handshake deal. You know, hey, if we're doing our job, you know, then you, you won't want to go anywhere else and you won't want to leave. And if we're not doing our job, then you have every right to leave and we respect that. And so the management companies that, that I've been with, I really respect that way of doing business and not having uh, a big contract. You know, I've definitely worked with artists and been around artists that have signed over a, you know, a contract with a two-year sunset clause and they're kind of committed to a lot a lot of things that they wish they didn't commit to on the front end. And I just, you know, I have empathy for those artists and they, they've worked their whole career for something and they're working on it. And now they kind of just handed off a big piece of the, the pie to somebody and moving on to the next. So I prefer the handshake deal in good faith and just, Hey, you know, we're going to do the best we can for you and, and make sure that you're happy. So with the handshake deal, are you, in an email, do you have any like basic deal memo though? You know, explaining, you know, we're getting 20% of adjusted gross based upon X, Y, and Z. And do you have any sort of, again, going back to an email, you know, hey, if, if you do, if, if we do part ways, here's how we're going to divvy up uh, that 20% or whatever over the next two years. Do you have anything like that or not? Um, yeah, there will be some emails and some agreements, but you know, for, any, I've been in deals where it's, it's literally just a few people in the room and okay, let's get this straight. Is this, this is what we're thinking. You agree. We agree. We shake hands and we walk out. And usually it's just an email on the terms of within our company saying, Hey, this is what we agreed to. Here's the terms. And just so we know, as far as accounting goes and those type of things, but you know, I haven't really, I mean, I've definitely seen those big long contracts. I haven't necessarily been a part of it myself in more of a, handshake deal and leave any time um, and then tip and then to answer the second part of your question you know if if something has gone maybe bad or maybe just moving on not necessarily bad but if there is a, a separation I've only been a part of it on really good terms to where it's like okay well you know that sucks but here's here's how we're going to sort it out afterwards does this feel good to you does this feel good to you I've never been in a really bad um, you know battle or legal battle of that sorts of you know this doesn't feel fair we want it to feel fair i personally want it to feel fair i wouldn't you know i, I want to start a relationship that way and end a relationship that way i bring, only bring that up because uh, it's a great answer um there's nothing wrong with it uh we talked to brian Schechter, who used to be the manager for my chemical romance and um they relieved him of his duties and it was sort of a surprise to him this is going back years but it was a surprise to him and he um was able to go back and look at emails and some stuff they had talked about so that he could go ahead and collect some revenue that he deserved. Um, otherwise, he was probably not going to be able to collect that money. So 
that's why I bring up either the deal memo or the emails like, like you do. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I've, and I've seen that done on more of a touring perspective. You know, I've definitely seen somebody go back to the email agreements and, and fight it, fight it in court, you know, so I've, it's definitely important to, to keep those. But as far as the agreement, I think that we're more of a handshake, make sure it's all fair for everybody. And that comes straight from the, from Narval, the CEO. I mean, he's, I, I can't, tell you how much love and respect I have for that man. I mean, he's just a brilliant person. He's a brilliant businessman. And, you know, he's been in business a long time doing things the right way. So it's nice to learn from somebody like that. I know you said you've never had a real legal problem with not having like a real contract like written, but I wonder how would you handle it if you did have a problem with it? Because I think oral agreements if I remember correctly, are only good if the act can be performed within a year. So how do you think you would, you and the company would handle um, running into trouble like that? No, I think that's a, another beautiful thing about being aligned with a company and not being, you know, an independent manager, whether it's Red Light or whether it's Starstruck is, you know, having access to a legal team and somebody that's fought, you know, it's been through some of these battles, these legal battles and these cases. You know, and I would, me personally, I would definitely lean on that team to support me as much as I could, you know, with, with our legal representation. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to kind of put your trust in, in those individuals and the company to do the right thing at that point. This next question is kind of technical, so if you don't remember this exact situation, that's okay. But I was looking at the Hunter Hayes Closer to You tour route. Uh, from last year, I think, and he played Columbus, Ohio on May 11, and then he played the West Coast, and he didn't go back to Ohio until May 30th. So was this because of some little radius clause, or was it more of a booking availability thing? It could have been both. It, it, yeah, it definitely could have been both. You know, when when it comes to touring, you don't want to burn out a market either. So meaning you don't want to hit, you don't want to play the same market, you know, too many times within a year. Um, you want to give people something to look forward to and say they're buying a ticket um you know for a while when hunter was you know exploding when he was you know his first three number ones he was sitting markets pretty regularly two or three times a year and it was great and people were still buying tickets but at some point you know you don't want to play a market two or three times a year because you're now competing not only against yourself but others if if there's other concerts in that that market that year you know i'm a giant let's say Foo Fighters fan but I unfortunately I don't think I'm going to buy Foo Fighters tickets three times in a year because I'd rather spread out my money to see some other shows that I really want to see and so I think that that's something to really consider when you're positioning an artist on, on the road and touring. Are you a Foo Fighters fan now? I am. Okay good yeah I'm a big Foo Fighters fan I love Foo Fighters yeah. stuff. I've seen them a bunch and I love it but I use that as an example because as much as I love them I'm a big fan I probably couldn't justify spending 700 bucks a year you know on three concerts when i could go see you know i like whoever justin timberlake or jay-z or something else you know and so for me i you know i like to spread it out and see a lot of different shows with with that in mind sammy if you don't mind it just let me a question so when you are uh working on a tour for one of your artists are you looking at or uh, and using past information to try and find an average spend for, per fan so you can forecast not only ticket sales, but also forecast merch sales so you guys can kind of determine, 
Are we going to be in the red for this tour? Are we going to be in the black? Do we need to halfway through take a couple of corporate gigs or something to pay for um, uh, some of these shows that might be loser shows for us, but we just want to get in the market? Do you look at all that stuff? Yeah, we definitely look at all the data. Um, you know, we will budget a full tour, so it won't necessarily be show specific, but we will say like, you know, out of these 20 shows, here's the markets we want to hit. You know, typically we'll have a promoter on board at that point and a promoter will give us either a guarantee or a percentage. And, um, and we can really kind of budget the tour out and say, hey, you know, maybe these two shows, we won't hit back end points because these aren't our biggest markets. We might not have the best, but we definitely want to build those markets. So it's a growing opportunity for us, you know, but we can factor that in the overall tour expenses and we can really say, okay, well, it's, it's beneficial for us to hit these four markets that may not have our audience yet to build these markets because we can afford it and we can see the numbers are working. Otherwise you can also, you know, same exact scenario the other way, you know, it really doesn't make sense for us to hit these four markets right now because we're not really showing the support. And, you know, it's really, it's a really interesting game too, because, you know, now you have, you know, radio obviously is a big factor in what markets were really hot for you. But if you don't have radio, you know, you look at Spotify numbers, but Spotify, the way I look at it is like, it's almost like a marketing entry point. It doesn't mean it's a true fan that's buying tickets. And so when you're looking at Spotify numbers, we did a big um, report at the company, not a report, but just like a little research. And we found um, artists that their followers and their listeners on Spotify. Then we took the average of those numbers and those are your fans. But then we took you know, if there was, and this, I'm making these numbers up, but if you have an artist that has 100,000 fans in Los Angeles and they played Los Angeles that month, how many tickets did they sell? And what's the conversion rate there? And we found that there was only like 3%. Wow. You know, so 3% of that number. So, and, and that's all over the board. Some of them didn't even chart, you know, some of them were 0.005%. And so when you look at it on Spotify numbers, you got to realize, you know, these are kind of your, Instagram followers, the people that just pass through and see it, listen to a cool song, cool, and then on to the next. That doesn't mean like, oh man, I heard a Leon Bridges song just now and I'm going to go buy tickets to all this conference, you know? So it's really, you got to really kind of start diving deep into data to see who your true fans are and not just a passive listener. And also looking, are these people fans of a playlist that my artist's song was on or are they fans of my artist? Where I guess you look at, you go to your Spotify for artists and you look at that six or seven different categories of where the streams are coming from. And are they all fairly even or are they all heavily Spotify editorial playlist? You know, which means there are a lot of people just listening to that playlist and maybe not necessarily going to the artist's homepage, you know, catalog page, for example. And that's exactly right. And I think that New Music Friday is a great example of that, right? New Music Friday is one of the biggest playlists on Spotify. And people, there's a lot of artists that I've heard. I've heard multiple artists say, oh, we did it. We made New Music Friday. And it's, but what are you going to do with it? Again, this is, just a, this is just a marketing entry point. This is just an awareness tool. So now people are aware of you. What are you going to do with that? How do you get them to convert into a true fan and buying tickets and buying merch and really diving into your ecosystem and your brand as an artist? You know, it's a great tool, but what's your next, what's the next step? So what is the next step generally for you? You know, we just, you got to try to just keep those fans engaged, more content, more content, more compelling content and things to kind of like, you know, things to gravitate towards. I mean, 
consulting with a rock band right now and you know they're they're they have this like puppet master and this wolf head and all these different characters so we built this like we built this world in, in music videos made out of paper mache that this artist did in Italy and it's really awesome. And so the visual content is very compelling. And we realize, you know, the music's great, but what people are really gravitating towards is visual content. So then we ramped up the visual content and now we're having a, a game within the website being built out and we're having these doors that you can go to with each character, which will take you into an immersive world, right? And that's the goal would be those fans now that they've seen you, now introduce them to something even more compelling. Now, and then also, I'm a firm believer of asking your fans or, or telling them exactly what you want. You know, don't, don't beat around it. Say, hey, you know, we want you to buy merch, but if you buy a piece of merch, here's what you get. Or hey, come follow me on this website and here's what you get. But I, I'm also a strong believer that adding more value is the way to win. Don't add, we're asking fans all day long to buy tickets, buy merch, follow me on this, check out my socials, you know, donate to this charity. And we're asking fans so much, we have to provide more value to the fan to get them to want to do that. So we need to add more content all the time, more, more um, conversations between fan and artist directly, you know, these Instagram lives, YouTube lives, you know, these, you know, text me and I'll text you back kind of, kind of campaigns I think is really useful because it just adds value to the fan, makes them feel like you're, you have a one-on-one relationship. Speaking of staying relevant and always having more content to put out, I've learned in my classes that it's better to release singles when you're starting out than full albums. Do you think that that's true? Do you usually do that with your artists? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I agree. And I think that even as you get bigger, it's probably better. If you're maybe an artist that's been around and you've, you, you're used to releasing albums, you know, that's great. But I think that to stay relevant these days, you have to be on, on people's minds. You have to constantly be putting out content, you know, and that's not just music, but you know, you put out a, you put out a song and then you have the alter, alternate version and everyone's seeing this now in the remix version, maybe the piano only version. And it, the, that's designed to stay stay relevant on people's minds. Also, another marketing marketing entry tool. Um, if you have a song that you created and then you did a piano only version, now you're on piano only playlists, and people can now discover you through a different genre almost, and come back to who you are to see. So, um, but staying in front of people is is I think the most important thing right now. Once people drop an album, you listen to that album maybe for another week or two. And then you kind of, unless you have a ton of content and a ton more marketing materials to, to back that up, you, you really don't go back to that album a ton more because there's so much more information being thrown at you all at once. And I think I, I read somewhere, and this is a little bit old now, but they said like, you know, I think it was like 15 years ago or maybe 20 years ago, uh, a brand that would market in front of you, you'd need to see that brand name four times before it would relevant, before you remember it. And now it's something like 22 times you need to see a brand to remember it. And I think the artist is the same way. There's so many new artists coming up. There's anybody who's anybody can upload content and upload a song onto Spotify. Um, anybody who's anybody can, you know, everyone, every single one of us have the same exact marketing resources you know, but who's resourceful, who's resourceful enough to really market this content and 
and make it, you know, stick out beyond the noise. When I was in radio, that number was seven. Seven? You, you had to, with a, with a commercial, because radio is built all around just commercials. And uh, the pitch to, to people to advertise is you have to advertise a lot because you have to hit them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then you have to stay hitting them to remain top of mind. So it's the, yeah, it's the exact same kind of thing. Um, separately, uh, going back to Foo Fighters versus singles. So we met with Joe Riccatelli, who's the co-president of RCA, which Foo Fighters are signed to. And we brought that up to him, either on a radio show or, or Marconi, I think maybe when we visited uh, the Sony building last year. Yeah, it might have been last year. Yeah, we uh, brought up Foo Fighters and Single. So their last album, Concrete and Gold, I think it was, um, they released, I think, three singles before they put out the whole album. And I said, I asked Joe, I said, is that what you guys are going to do? Because um, obviously that's the way it's going for all the reasons you just said. And he said, for them, they're still an album-oriented band. They'll still do two or three singles. Uh, but then there's, they, they put the album together because as artists, that's what they want. It's an album. It's this collection of work that they want to put out, and they're going to do it, which is fine for them. But I would say for most um, new bands coming up, exactly like you said, um, that content, they're going to put it out. Nobody knows who they are anyway. And unless, you know, it's lightning strike and um suddenly for whatever reason everybody cares it's it's done like you said two weeks later it's over and they spent years and i have a friend who put out you know he's my age put out a uh lp and, a, and an album on spotify he spent years putting it together did a go fund me all this kind of stuff and two weeks later it was like it never never happened yep and i think you know what what I think it's just a finding a creative way to package an album too. You know, I mean, it's, I think albums are, are great. And I mean, a lot of artists do kind of gravitate towards that body of work, you know, and they're passionate about it. This is a, this is a chapter or a moment in their life that they're trying to capture with music. And it took me a while because I'm not a musician. And I'm not an artist. I kind of, unfortunately take a very business approach to it. And so that's where I kind of brought up earlier, like the feelings and emotions. I really have to be respectful of that, you know, when it comes to an artist and what they've gone through, but you know, they're putting their, they're putting their heart and their soul out there to create this certain body of work and this music and they want it to be this. And so you have to respect that. Um, but also packaging an album, you know, and, and the way you release it is fine too. You know, Foo Fighters, like you said, may have done three songs and then they drop the album. You know, I just recently worked with an artist that we're doing, um, six songs and then dropping the other six for a 12 song album. I've seen artists drop eight out of 10 and then the extra two complete mm -hmm. the album. So I don't think there's a right or wrong way anymore. And even talking to streaming services, there's really not, there's no, there's no rule book. You can be as creative as you want. You can drop, you know, two every other week. And then, you know, once it gets to 12, that's your album. You can drop all 12 at once. I don't think there's a, there's a right or a wrong way. Do you encourage your artists to put out content on like social medias like TikTok and Instagram like just as much as they put out new music? Uh, I, I personally do and I, you know, back in the day we were really protective with music because we didn't want it to get leaked and now it's, you know, I don't think people are as protective anymore. Um, those two platforms that you just named TikTok and Instagram are very good tools and resources, in my opinion, to um, 
to understand what fans want. You know, I've encouraged artists to, you know, have a series and play your best four songs and have a little contest, just singer songwriter style to see what your fans are gravitating towards. And then when they, you know, once they speak, you know, great. That's, I didn't realize, you know, I'm, I could be so close to one particular song, but if my fans are gravitating towards this, that, that says something and maybe we should spend a little bit more marketing dollars and more money focusing on this track. And so I think that those are really great tools to use. Um, we have used influencer campaigns as far as TikTok goes and Instagram goes to kind of have them leak, not leak, but, you know, put songs on their posts to see what people are reacting to. Um, and it gives us great data. Um, as a songwriter, when you, as soon as you write the song, you have, a, you know, you have 25 songs. How are you going to decide what 12 you want to spend tens of thousands of dollars on to record, you know, and if you have fans giving you some insight on that, it helps you narrow down the process. How important do you think leaking stuff is for marketing? Because I remember hearing Marshmallow's manager talk about how he leaked like the first picture of Marshmallow without his helmet to MTV or Billboard. And that really created like a big marketing thing, I guess. So how important do you think it is to leak things like not when they're not actually being leaked? Um, I think it just comes down to whatever the creative is for your marketing campaign. I mean, I, you know, one of the coolest things I've ever seen, and I just didn't, I couldn't believe this took off, but uh, Eminem's manager years ago posted an album that he got in the mail and he posted on Instagram, check out this new album. Well, the camera shot looked across the skyscraper and on the other side on the wall, there was a, um, a prescription drug company advertisement on the wall but the e in the in the prescription drug was backwards like the m&m logo and then there was an 800 number on the bottom and these fans looked at beyond zoomed into the instagram found this 800 number and on the 800 number they had the dr dre m&m song i need a doctor when you called in and then it would leak some of the new songs on this recording and you can kind of track this whole really cool marketing campaign you know, and that was all designed that way, obviously, right? So, I mean, it was just a really cool, unique marketing stunt. Um, you know, I'm not sure how, if Marshmallow's marketing stunt was planned or if it wasn't planned, but, you know, it could go two ways. You can plan something and you can maybe leak something that you want the press to grab onto and you make it a story or you can, you know, fuel the fire. Once something does come out, you got to be reactive quick and you got to just dump as much gasoline on that fire as you can to keep the momentum and build it. Yeah. I don't want to let this interview end or even continue right now without bringing up that you um, organized a record-breaking tour, which was the most shows played across different cities in 24 hours. So what went into organizing that and how much did it help with marketing and publicity? Um, that was probably one of the most intense. Um, I was the tour manager for Hunter at the time and to give everybody a little context, but. Um, I was the tour manager, and so we we went back and forth on the dates. We when we brought in the Guinness Book of World Records um, for this this stunt, and it, it kind of was a stunt. I mean, we we were the opening act of the Flaming Lips doing this. The, the most shows played in 24 hours, and Hunter had this. He was like, "I got to beat that record. I can do more. I can do 10." And so we we brought in you know agents and promoters and brands, and we kind of built this tour 
wins the Guinness Book of World Records, when they came on board, there's so many rules and regulations on, okay, well, each city has to have a population of X. You know, you have to play X amount of music. You have to sell X amount of tickets. You have to, you know, everything was very, like, calculated. Uh, you can't break any traffic laws or traffic violations, you know, so you can't go speeding down the road to race to the next. Um, but there's all these, all these things done, and so... It was, um, it was a lot. I think we had seven different tour buses and two sprinter vans. At one point, I had two helicopters ready to go. And, um, you know, the night before we were supposed to take off, the helicopters had to cancel, and I had no backup plan. And so I booked a jet, and, you know, the jet couldn't take off the morning of. And, I mean, it was just, like, one thing after another. But um, once we got going, we, we did it, and the, the 10 shows happened. We probably could have got an 11th show in there. Um, but it was, it was, it was a pretty big deal. I mean, whether you knew about it or not, just by hearing about it, um, we traveled presidential style. I mean, we shut down Times Square. We had, we had presidential style um, escorts traveling with us for all 10 stops. I mean, when we crossed state lines, these troopers would peel off and these troopers would pick us up. And we'd, we'd, we, it was pretty incredible, actually. It's a really and cool thing. What was the distance, the furthest distance between shows? I think it was maybe like two hours. We, we did it all up in the Northeast. So it was all pretty fairly close to each other. So sure. we, and we obviously planned it that way, The obvious, and we, you know, we spent the extra money on the security detail and the escorts obviously, because, you know, I don't think we could have done it with traffic going through New Jersey and Times Square and everything else. It just wasn't possible, but yeah, it was, <laughs> it, was it was probably, it, it was very challenging, but so it was incredibly rewarding. You know, I mean, we had all of our record labels, sponsors, press, you know, um, we even brought some fans on the road with us and sprinter vans behind us. So it was a really cool thing. And it was funny because fans actually, their fans actually made it to the shows before we did. And so we would see the fans at every single show. And so, yeah. Like following the dead around in the yeah. old days. Yeah. But then when you were, Traveling, it must have been sort of a, it's, it wasn't a stadium style venues, obviously. It must have been smaller venues so that you could load up, get out of there, you know, unpack. Did you have multiple, um, did you have like a, a, a set of people going to the next venue while you were still at this venue so that you could kind of go there and then the people at the venue where you were could jump to the next one? Did, did, I guess two sets of backline basically in production, is that how you had it? That's exactly how we had it. We had a leapfrog production crew. It would okay. go to, you know, one, three, five, seven, nine, two, four, six, eight, ten. So we just have, have a leapfrog crew set up. So we'd right. go in and, and to answer your question, yeah, they were smaller venues. They, I think it was like smaller clubs, anywhere from 500 to 2,500 seat clubs. So we just kind of rolled in, band would walk off, play three to four songs, jump back on the bus, and we were on to the next. And it was like that for 24 hours straight. I mean, right. there's no at, the, at that level for him, were these underplays for him? Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. That's the only way we could do it. Right. Yeah, right. Money loser? Just strictly from a money perspective, not about all the extra press you got. Um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't say it was a money loser. I mean, we had, we had sponsors come in and underwrite a lot of the expenses, so I can't really say that we, we lost money on it. Um, mm -hmm. I, we definitely wasn't a money maker. We definitely didn't walk out of there making money, but... Um, you know, I think that the brands coming on board and helping us out was probably the only way we could have done it. Mm -hmm. But it was a good investment. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah.
and, and we kicked the whole thing off on Good Morning America in New York. And so it was great press exposure. And that was, you know, that kind of helped us get in the door with them and just, you know, make it a big thing. Yeah. So what is your uh, personal relationship with uh, Belmont University students? Belmont, I, lo I love Belmont. I try to do as much with them as I can. You know, I, I, um, I at one point had some small focus groups and just trying to help people. But I mean, I'm always there and I, I tell this to Belmont too. I'm always there for anyone that needs help. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will, I'll do any, I'll go above and beyond for those, those students. I mean, I've, I've been there. I've always, you know, we've all been there at one point and just could use right. some, some advice and some help and I'd love to give back in that way. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Kind of switching gears here, but in 2020, how popular are CDs and downloads in country music? Do artists um, still make decent money off of them? You know, I don't have stats. I, it's definitely different um, depending on the artist. So I think country music is, you know, so wide. I don't think you can narrow it down to that. But, you know, I think, you know, like what Blake Shelton probably does okay still on downloads and some CDs and maybe some, uh, you know, George Straits versus maybe a Dan and Shay, you know, so I think it's kind of hard to say. Um, you know, I know that there was just some research. My fiance works for uh, CMA, Country Music Association, and then I know they have the, the research done every week and sent to them, but I just, I just don't have the answers off the top mm -hmm. of my head. How has the pandemic and quarantine affected the way you normally work? Um, as far as I go, I mean, we, we've been really fortunate, you know, obviously the live music industry is not happening. And I think that's really hurt us in a big, big, big way. It's going to take us a while to recover from that. Um, you know, these days it is really easy to still continue to release content, which you were seeing more and more of. So, and I, and I say music as content as well. People are still able to record in their studio, studio, you know, home studios, still able to release music still able to record fairly decent quality music videos and content pieces to support it. So um, we're seeing a lot of that. I, you know, I think it was, um, it was really good that I feel like the Instagram lives and all that, that whole movement that happened around the quarantine thing for artists and actors, um, it's really helped somebody to really like get, feel like you're a friend of these people and you kind of feel this closeness that you probably didn't feel before. You're in your in their living room with them, listening to them play guitar. You're seeing their kids and seeing them cook dinners. And you feel this, you know, this connection with these some of these artists and some of your icons that you probably wouldn't have ever seen before. And I think in that way, it's really, really great. I still think that there is a, a giant piece of the puzzle missing with the live music. I think that that resonates with people a lot more so than you think, you know, going without live music, I think is, is pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier um, with the structure of Starstruck, uh, when we were talking about, you know, the, the different services you guys provide. Um, one thing you didn't mention, we've talked about radio briefly, but do you guys have uh, one or two or a handful of people who work radio? For the company as well or is that because you also mentioned artist label services so i was curious if or are you going to an ada or a caroline and having them do that for you yeah correct so we don't we don't have a radio promotion team that works for starstruck um mm -hmm. people on the label obviously the label will handle the radio promotion side of it um and then we also work with some third-party teams that so um john king is one of our artists for example 
um, we'll just hire a third party um, company for them to do radio promotions for us to take us to mainstream radio. How successful is that? Are those, when you're doing that, is that with formats that might not be uh, in the wheelhouse of a label or is that with an artist who is not signed to a major label? Um, that's an artist that's not signed to a major label, John King. He, so he's under, you know, we have a, our own kind of, it's called Starstruck Records, so we can distribute records on our own and help some of the, the developing acts. Um, you know, to answer your question as far as it being successful, it's, radio is just a really, in my opinion, hard thing to navigate right now. And I think you said it best earlier when you said, you know, you have to constantly hit ads and hit ads. Right. And you have to mm. have to hit people over the face with ads and that's a money maker. But the more ads you play, the less music you can play. And there's not a shortage of new artists wanting to be on the radio. There's more of them. And so how do you pick more artists to play on the radio when you have less airtime to play them? And so you know, it's really, really tough for one, an independent artist, but two, a new artist, even on a label to kind of break through into the radio and, and climb the charts into a number one slot, which is what you're hoping for when the airplay is getting shorter and shorter. Saw some reports that, you know, during the quarantine, you know, radio stations kind of wanted to keep, keep the audience familiar. They didn't want to introduce more new artists to their audience because they weren't sure how that would react with people sitting at home listening to the radio. And so, you know, it's really hard for artists. You know, I remember, seeing something that you know a new artist could probably break into the top 10 at country radio in 26 to 35 weeks and just the other day i saw a report that it took an artist to 64 weeks to go to number one they worked mm -hmm. the same song at radio for a year and three months mm -hmm. you know and so it's just it it takes a lot takes a lot of time takes a lot of patience takes a lot of money you know and you got to fire it all cylinders you can't just send it to radio and hope that you know, oh, they'll pick it up and it's going to be exciting when they do. You have to be out there, you know, doing all the radio shows you can do, giving away meet and greets, making sure that it works with the touring, you know, making sure that, you know, all the, you're firing on all cylinders as far as radio goes. And when you talk about money, that's because you're either hiring some independent uh, promoters or it means spending the money to get to that radio show or to do that meet and greet. Where is the money going? I guess all, talking about all of the above. Yeah. So if you hire an independent radio team, they're going to obviously charge you for their services, which is promoting the record. And this is same with the label, I guess. I mean, they're just financial model is obviously built into the company, but for a third party company, you would hire that third party company to go promote your record and they would charge their fee, but they're also flying around the country, renting rental cars, getting in hotels to, to pitch your song to these radio companies. So there's a lot of expense that goes along with that as well. And then if you're having to jump in and go do, you know, these six or seven stops at radio on a tour bus or a sprinter van, you got your driver, the driver has hotels, you have fuel, you have, you know, paying your band guys if you're doing a radio show. And so it adds up pretty quick. I mean, you know, if you, especially when you're talking about, you know, 64 weeks now, you know, yeah. and you're trying to hit those radio stations more than once, you don't just hit them and then, okay, They've, they've caught on. You have to make the circles around the radio stations. Because I, I wanted to make it clear the money was not payola. It's not, you are not paying them. So I wanted to make it clear that it's not that, that it's the stuff that you're talking about. And so when you talk about going back to the station, it might be, okay, last time we hit um, the, the lunchtime drive, you know, the midday, 
now we want to hit either afternoon drive or maybe we can get morning drive this time or you know so it's it's i would assume you're looking at that as well and you're keeping charts of last time we were there and trying to hit like you said you want to hit them at when people buy advertising they don't just buy advertising just at morning drive because people do drive home as well and people do go out for lunch so they tr they try and stagger it so is that sort of the or thought process there exactly and sometimes we you know depending on the timing you can get everybody in one room you can make one stop at a station and meet their whole staff their afternoon and you know evening drive you know programmers and you know spend some time with them and some quality time you know have a nice dinner with them and and do it right but you know when when we've done radio bus tours we'll try to hit four or five stations in a day and now those could be in different cities and so you're just stopping in for an hour playing some music having lunch you know get building a relationship but building the relationship part is is really important you know like you said i mean you know you want it, it it's a relationship game you know you don't want to stop in once every year you want to continue the conversation and you know check in with radio and just have that dialogue you know and just understand you know if they're not playing your record have an open dialogue to ask why not you know or what's working on your format what's not working and and as an artist they really appreciate or as a radio station they really appreciate when the artist reaches out to have those conversations with them. And I think it's important. Sammy, do you have a final question that you'd like to ask? I don't. <laughs> oh, you don't? <laughs> okay. Like, no, that's enough with you. <laughs> well, she does not like you. She's not into this. Um, could I ask one final question then as we, as we, uh, the final question is about, so you mentioned uh, John King is his name? Unsung artist. So he puts out, he's going to put out, let's say, a new new song. Um, where do you stand when it comes to advertising on Instagram and Facebook and budgeting for that and how you how you would do it? Are you somebody who's into that or you're not into that digital advertising? Instead, you're looking elsewhere. I'm very much into the digital advertising. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason why is you can really... Um, you can really find your audience. You can, you know, who exactly who you're advertising towards, you know, what that audience wants to listen to, you know, what they've listened to in the, in the past, you know, you can kind of really focus in on your audience rather than just cast this wide net and help people catch on. So I'm, I'm really a really big fan of it. You know, we have a, a template that we use at Starstruck for marketing that is kind of a, an estimated budget template. So we can say, we're expecting to stream this song 25 million times. Okay, well that gives us, that kind of breaks down what we would make and what we can spend on marketing towards these songs. And then within that marketing budget, advertising is broken down in there. Now we can say, okay, well, we can spend 500 bucks a week on digital advertising and we can go after those audiences. But yeah, between, Digital advertising, we don't do a lot of influencer advertising other than testing the songs, like I said. We've had a model where we'll put, you know, we'll have some influencers on TikTok, for example, play some of our artist songs as the background music and have them report back to us, like, did this work? Did it react? What kind of comments did you get about the music? We can actually track who was clicking on the song to listen to it. So we, we do think it's very, very important for digital advertising. What are those influencers getting? Are they getting gift cards? Are you giving them swag? What are they getting to help you out? No, I think it's definitely a pay-to-play game now. It's okay. um, yeah. so there's anywhere from a hundred dollars to you can pay influence now a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it just depends mm -hmm. on what you're looking at. You know, um, 
there was an instance where I was trying to get an artist on a YouTube influencer account so they can kind of, they had a really big YouTube following on their show, kind of help give a little plug for a, for an artist's new album. And they were, they said, we can do something. We can probably give you about six seconds for 65 grand. Hmm. That's kind of the, you know, so it's kind of all over the map, but you know, what we do is we've, we've seen, um, kind of, we start small with a smart, small, influencer marketing campaign and we say okay well let's blast it out to these these influencers that have maybe 2500 followers just something small and see who's reacting and then we kind of have an idea of okay well 90 percent of those 2500 are really liking this song well, let's take this song mix it with another and go to a larger audience now what do we think and so and then we can go to a larger audience so we have like a three tier scaled influencer strategy that we use to kind of see what songs were working and what people are gravitating towards as far as the influencer thing on TikTok. Okay. And two real quick final questions. Real quick. Yeah, yeah no worries. You, when you um, mentioned earlier your, your digital spend and you based it upon your projected revenue from the streams, what uh, do you have a, a working percentage? You know, 3% of streaming revenue is what we put into advertising. What percent do you usually think about mm -hmm. that? So we have, I kind of break, I, we have it broken out into content being 25%, which is like all you, all of your, maybe, you know, Instagram videos, your secondary music videos, meaning like your lyric videos and things to keep people engaged. Um, um, alternate recordings and remixes, collaborations are 20%. Um, advertising and promotion is 20% as well. So, and, okay. and we kind of have advertising and promotion broken down into any sort of advertising, radio, print, TV, outdoor. Um, but a lot of our uh, advertising goes into internet and social. Um, but that kind of goes towards, you know, email marketing, giveaways and sweepstakes, any, anything you think as far as advertising and promotion, we wrap mm -hmm. into that. Okay. And then the final quick question, I had sort of asked this long ago, then we kind of went in a different direction. When budgeting for a tour, are you budgeting strictly based on the guarantee or do you project merch, potential merch revenue in there as well? Or do you consider the merch that's gravy? Just keep that aside. We try to do it just based on a guarantee okay. or guarantee plus, and then any sort of merch and VIP would be on top of that. So it kind of just helps, helps us on the back end. We'd rather report great news for our artists about how much money they made this year than the not so great news. So we want to yeah. make sure we're giving ourselves a little bit of padding and just making sure that we're taking advantage of all those other opportunities. And when you budget for the tour, do you throw a little contingency in there? Like, a, like do you put like 10 or 20% contingency in there just in case? Not that big, not that much. Yeah. I mean, we do a little bit and we'll kind of budget a little bit higher, but we kind of, we're pretty true to it, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, we, we try to stay pretty close and pretty true to it. Um, if, if anything else, you know, we'll probably budget a little higher on flight costs and hotels and those type of things. And so it'll kind of come out in the wash. Um, but we, you know, we don't really throw a big 20% contingency on anything. I don't anyway. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think 20% um, of this interview was amazing and the other 80 was really good. What do you think, Sammy? Very good. Good. It was good. Sure. I got through all my questions. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. So we, we got a lot done with you, Dan Waz. So thank you very much for appearing on Music Biz 101 More. Absolutely. Anytime. Yeah.
So you sound right. okay. So every week we're going to have you on. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> so tell us a couple of seconds about your, uh, your podcast. Yeah. So we actually, a good friend of mine named Sam Savage is the CEO of American Songwriter Magazine. And it's been around forever, maybe 35 mm -hmm. years. And he, he bought it recently and decided that they weren't, they didn't have the digital media side growth the way he would like. And so he's grown the digital side like crazy the past maybe less than a year since he's owned it. Um, and part of that was to um, build a podcast network. So he asked me to partner with American Songwriter to build the American Songwriter Podcast Network. So um, just recently we've signed over, I think we have 11 signed podcasts now. We're launched and we're live. And that's, I think we just, we just announced two weeks ago tomorrow. So, I mean, it's very, very new. Oh, I'm sorry, a week ago tomorrow. Hmm. And we, we finally did our announce. Um, numbers have been through the roof and we're getting a lot of, a lot of great reactions. So podcasting has been really, really, really great. It's a fun, fun side of the brain to switch over and, you know, because as I'm talking to podcasts, you know, you kind of put on your management brain as well and you say, okay, well, is this right for the artist and what would be the right move for right. You know, a podcaster, which I consider the artist, mm -hmm. kind of going back and forth between what's good for them, what's good for us. But we've had a really, really great reaction and everyone seems to be really happy with what we've presented. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Just as everybody's going to be really happy listening to this interview with you. Yeah. We'll see. Let me know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. Cross those fingers and eyes and, and legs and toes. All right. So thank you, Dan, very much. We do appreciate yes. having you on. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Dan. All right. Clapping hands for you. Clapping my hands for you. That good. Thank you. Thank you. you. Take care. We'll see you again. Right. So, Sammy, thank you very much for bringing Dan Wise on. That was an excellent interview. You did an excellent job. Yes. Thank you, you're welcome. Yes. And Dr. Dan, thank you for being on this. Yes. So, uh, as I'll I- Stan. What? Alveda Stan. At the end of every show, we do not say hello, that'd be silly, because at the end of every show we say- Adios, 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 adios! Than just friends losing control.
control of the situation. You're losing hope, I'm losing patience.